You are listening to Building the Future, Green Building in the New Millennium, brought to you by SustainableHomesOfTheFuture.com. I'm your host, Ian Sollenberger, and this podcast is for anyone that wants to collaborate and learn more about how to design and construct energy-efficient buildings for an environmentally sustainable future. If you have questions about how to design and build with a lower environmental impact, or you'd like to come on our show as a guest, please email me directly at info at SHF, that's Sustainable Homes of the Future, shfbuild.com. Uh, visit our website at shfbuild.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at shfbuild. Our mission with this podcast is to inspire you, our listeners, to go out and be sustainability advocates. Share these ideas so we can truly push this industry forward. We need each and every one of you to help us build the future today. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Building the Future, Green Building in the New Millennium. Uh, I am very excited today to have joining me uh, Angie Brooks, who is a fellow of the American Institute of Architects. Uh, She is the co-founder of Brooks and Scarpa here in Santa Monica. And... um, Many awards, many accolades. Uh, I won't, we'll go into that a little bit later, I guess, but thank you so much, Angie, for, for joining us. Thanks, Ian, happy to be here. You're welcome. Um, and I guess my first question is, you know, we were just chatting a little bit and there's all these terms, um, sustainability, uh, green building, eco-friendly building, um, environmental design, organic design. Um, it sort of started, I guess, way back with Frank Lloyd Wright and the organic design. Um, and it's come a long way. We're a hundred years uh, ish since then. And uh, you obviously haven't been practicing for that entire time, but you've been in the industry for uh, a couple decades here and um, you've been doing great work. Uh, and I'm curious what, what your take is on some of those terms, sustainability, green building, um, the term you guys use on your website is environmental stewardship. And are they all the same thing or uh, are they you know, different shades of, of pink or different shades of green, I guess, for, yeah. for lack of a, a better pun there? Yeah, that's a great question because I think it's something that's been around for a long time, at least in my industry. And when I graduated from the University of Florida, which was in 1987 um, with my undergraduate degree, they called it regionalism. Ooh, that's one I haven't heard. And regionalism is building within the region within which you exist or which in, within which you're building. So you have to know what the climate is in order to design. And so I was taught that when you design, that is one of the tools that you use, the same way that you use a drafting table or a computer or the code book you know, you use the environment within which you are. So I was in Florida, it's hot and humid, you know. Um, It makes a lot of sense to do certain things in Florida that you wouldn't do out here in California because it's dry and hot, you know, it's a different climate. So I always thought that was something that architects were supposed to do. Um, And then of course we had the 80s and the 90s, you know, when everybody was doing kind of whatever. And we just sort of, I think as a profession, lost that sort of as a tool that we use. And, you know, I don't think we can go around and say the concept behind this project is that it's 100% carbon neutral, for instance, right? We're still designers at the end of the day. I just think that this um, idea of sustainability and environmental stewardship 
because we now have scientists kind of involved in this, and we know a lot more information than we knew in the past, that helps us because we have better tools. But I don't think that it really should dictate anything other than I do think that the design of buildings is going to change because I think when you design a passive building, it does look a certain way. Um, so I think probably our perception of design, what, what is good design is changing a little bit, but I think this idea of sustainability as being a separate thing is completely antithetical to what I think an architect and a designer should be doing when they, you know, create the built environment. Nice. Uh, what were some of the, um, when you were doing regionalism, other than looking at the climate itself, what were some of the technologies, some of the innovations at that time that were sort of shaking up the industry and, and how has, how has that changed? How has technology um, specifically and, and building science um, come about in the last 30 years, 25 years? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is I had a professor back then who um, had solar panels on his house, you know, <laughs> in, I don't know, the 60s. And so when people talk about solar, even when we did our Colorado Court project in Santa Monica that we were just talking about, which has, you know, the solar panels basically on its sleeve, you know, um, it's not a new technology. Using the sun as an energy source, you know, is not a new technology. What's new is the technology of the solar panels themselves. So the solar panels that I have on my house, for instance, are one type that's not as efficient as the type of solar panels that are on Colorado Court. So they keep getting more and more efficient. And I think kind of the paradigm shift that I see in technologies like solar and solar panels is when the panels themselves can, themselves can become sort of double the efficiency mm -hmm. um, in the same kind of space, square footage, or if they could become the windows of your building, for instance. Right. You know, if you go to Europe, you know, solar panels are actually embedded in um, skylights and windows and finishes of buildings. And I think in this country, we're still using kind of solar panels and putting them on the roof as kind of a separate material. So I think there's what's going to happen in the future is a sort of paradigm shift within that technology. And people are talking about smart grids now and mm -hmm. battery storage and how to, um, cause we know the sun is only out and you generate most of your power during a certain time of the day. So it makes a lot of sense, but you need to have a smart grid to be able to use, um, to use that technology. So I see technology sort of on the infrastructure side and then also kind of, I'd like to see kind of the solar industry make that big kind of, paradigm jump to something, you know, much more efficient and different. And I think that that's going to happen. We talk uh, a bit on the podcast about with relation to water and solar and energy um, on site versus, you know, off site delivery of those things. And when you're talking about a smart grid, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's sort of what you're talking about is, you know, on a building by building basis, maybe a block by block basis, you're, you're coupling uh, the, the users, the consumers together to create a grid that sort of shares to some degree, you know, it's like a community um, grid of some sort. Um, and is that, is yeah. that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And they call it, we call it distributed generation. So it makes the most logical sense to generate your power where you use it, right? Because then you mm -hmm. don't have to send power through your infrastructure, which loses a lot of power mm -hmm. through the, the grid. Um, the problem with that is we have something called private utility companies. <laughs> Love which, those. Yeah, big fan. Yeah. 
which are um, most of the state of California. So I'm in LADWP territory, which is a public company. But if you're in Edison territory, it's a private company. And private utility companies have shareholders. And so it's generally short-term thinking and it's generally profit for shareholders. That's kind of their priority. So when we did Colorado Court, for instance, um, which is in Edison territory, we were not allowed to send any of our power across our property line. Wow. Um, we had both solar panels and a micro turbine, which was a gas fired micro turbine at the time, um, which could generate power to much, much cheaper rate than what we could get off the grid. And so those two active systems together took hundred percent of the energy load of that building. But at the end of the day, Edison would not let us use the net meter for the solar panels because we had this other, what they called quote unquote, um, I want to say dirty, but sole source of energy wasn't solar or wind. So they didn't want, they didn't allow kind of the combination of the two. And then um, when we talked about sending power across the grid, they, they basically said we could send it across the grid, but that would mean we fall into the definition of a generating facility. And when you're building um, housing for um, people who are previously homeless, um, you know, so most of your building is a housing um, project it's not a generating facility. So we didn't meet the requirements of a generating facility. And to me, it's just semantics. It's a way to disincentivize people from actually sharing kind of solar. Now we do have community solar, which is something that's starting where people can actually now um, get utility, get electrical power through these community kind of groups, but it's taken a long time. And, um, you know, I sort of think that instead of sticking our head in the sand <clears throat> and trying to say we're going to keep trying to make a profit, I think that companies, even for-profit companies, should think to the future because it's going to be better for everyone when we do have a system that works for all of us and works for the environment too. Mm -hmm. and, and it's an opportunity uh, along those same lines for, for those companies to be innovators in the space. I mean, you know, the blockbuster analogy is, is one I've used before, but, you know, Netflix uh, came out if Blockbuster had the opportunity at that moment to say, oh, wow, like this is a good idea. Let's adopt this and maybe even make it better. Um, instead, they stuck their head in the sand and they were out of business, you know, within five years. Um, and yeah. I, I see a lot of fossil fuel companies um, and manufacturers that are using, you know, all, all of these materials and processes that we don't want to see because we know they're harmful to the environment and to people. Um, yeah. Doing the, doing the stick your head in the sand deal when, I mean, for people that are business people, I, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it makes good sense business wise to get ahead of the curve. And it's uh, kind of confusing to me that the more they dig in, the less opportunity they have to sort of diversify and, and maybe find new sources of, of revenue or new sources of business. Um, what that leads me to another question. You mentioned Europe and kind of being way ahead of us <laughs> in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. What, what do you think the differences are? Um, is it just, is it just uh, legislation or is it a cultural um, difference overall or both perhaps? Um, that, that sort of allows them to be so far uh, in advance, uh, you know, futuristic. Yeah, I think it's um, legislation and particularly because, you know, so uh, uh, we don't have a federal 
guideline, for instance, something called a feed-in tariff, right, where the federal government would say every state needs to allow developers or owners or uh, people who rent the ability to share in this kind of solar, you know, future or mm -hmm. this future of um, environmentalism. And so every utility company needs to allow to provide, needs to pay, you know, feed and tariff basically would pay those who generate energy at the source a certain amount of money, right, for generating power. Um, we also, that's sort of off the table, right, the feed and tariff. We, um, right. so states can do it differently themselves. We have a net metering um, we have net metering legislation and every state does it differently. So there's no federal guideline about even net metering, right? So for instance, is it every month? Is it every year? You know, does it roll over? Um, you know, the net meter is one that turns backwards and forwards, right? And then this idea about battery storage. So what's happening is there's no kind of overall, I guess, federal legislation that would be kind of this broad based blanket within which then the states could kind of do something, but at least it would set some standards and so I think it's all over the place. And so I, I would like to see kind of federal legislation on a lot of things, but um, particularly on the solar side too. And I think it makes a lot of sense because we know when we have brownouts, right, and blackouts that our grid is connected across states and across the country in ways that maybe don't lend themselves to each state doing something differently. You know, So if we're really gonna have a smart grid that kind of runs across our country, I think we should have some federal legislation that basically um, set some standards for how we can get to this carbon neutral future, which we all know we need to get. Yeah. 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 Soon. Um, so I think also, it's easier for yeah the European countries to do it because they're individual countries. Um, and that's kind of what you see. I'm not sure how, and I guess the electrical grid in Europe doesn't cross country to country. <laughs> it must not. Yeah. I'm just guessing. Yeah. Um, that's, that's interesting too, because you're, you're right. I hadn't even thought about that, but as far as some of these companies, what I was just speaking to, you know, maybe wanting to innovate or wanting to find new methods, if you've got, um, different legislation state to state and you're doing business in 15 different states, and now all of a sudden you've got to figure out how, you know, Oh, well, we've got this new product, but it's only available in seven out of the 15. And then in three of those seven, you have to do this and you have to do it in X, Y, Z, but in these other you know, states, you have to do it in this way. Then how, right. you know, as a, a company that maybe wants to expand or wants to do better, um, you know, that, that, that's a little bit of a handcuff. Mm -hmm. I would imagine. Yeah. It's so. all based. It's all state based. So there's a great website. Um, that's D, um, it's, um, let me see if I get this right. Maybe, I don't know if it's, it's the word desire, but without the E hmm. and it's D S I R E. And it is the, um, kind of website where you can go and click on your state to get the incentives that are in your state and kind of the regulations about sort of solar. So, um, but I think, you know, that's what we need to start doing. Thinking about things kind of on a big, much more kind of broader scale. Yeah. Yeah. Some leadership, uh, from government would be really helpful. <laughs> Definitely. Um, okay, cool. Uh, next question. So growing up in Florida, what do, you, uh, my question is, do you consider yourself a lifelong environmentalist? And I guess the, the sub question is, uh, how did growing up in Florida, um, influence that? Or you said you went to school in Florida, so maybe you didn't grow mm -hmm. up in Florida. 
Well, actually, I did grow up in Florida. Okay. Um, I did my undergrad in Florida, and then I came out to California to do my graduate work at SciArc. Nice. Um, but I've been coast to coast, right? I haven't really lived anywhere else. But um, I don't usually like labels. So, you know, I, if, yeah, I'm an environmentalist because I care about the environment, but I think everybody should care about the environment and should care about the future. So I don't think it should be a label for me because it's something I think everybody should be. Mm-hmm. I was um, called the citizen architect or awarded the citizen architect um, this month from the National AIA. And I think everyone should be a citizen architect. You know, I show up at um, public hearings for projects that are in my neighborhood to support them if they are great dense projects that need to be built in my neighborhood, you know, and I, whether or not I'm the architect for that project, you know, I'm, people say, are you a feminist? You know, well, yeah, I'm a feminist because I believe in equal rights for women. (laughs) You know, I also believe in equal rights for everyone, you know, so, you know, everybody should be a feminist, you know, so (laughs) it's sort of a label question. Um, Did did growing up in Florida, I mean, influence your connection to the environment at all? Were you an outdoorsy person growing up? Definitely. Well, I, my dad had a sailboat, so we would sail a lot. So I guess I was on the water a lot growing up. Mm. But um, the thing that I realized about Florida growing up there is that it's such a unique place. There's no other place like it in the world. It is so unique. And the, um, the state of Florida is essentially one big sponge and it literally slopes from one end to the other at a very slight slope, but it drains basically like a sponge. And when you have developers that have kind of run over the state of Florida, pouring concrete everywhere. um, And I think I discovered this when I was probably in high school, the water table was dropping because there was so much concrete being poured on top of what is essentially supposed to be a sponge, right? Which naturally cleans water. And this is something that has formed over millions and millions of years. So even the animals that are in Florida, the, um, you know, they're all sort of unique to the Florida ecosystem. And so Florida is actually a great example of how nature can kind of do it itself. This is just this beautiful place that cleans water naturally. My parents had a well. So literally they built their house, put a pipe in the ground and it went down to fresh water. Well, Florida is a tiny narrow state that's surrounded by salt water and it has freshwater reserves. And that's just such a unique, special thing that we should be saving, except that now with climate change, we have, sea level rise issues. And so we're going to get in the future saltwater intrusion into the freshwater reserves of the state of Florida. And it's just going to be, it's really sad to me to think that because it's happening slowly, I guess, for people's lifetimes, you know, climate change is happening slowly. It's not like a car accident or an airplane crash. People don't think it's an urgent problem. So there's a book called The Swamp, which is great. It's, it's a great book written about the state of Florida and about how Um, it was just a free for all for development and kind of, and so it's sad when I, when I think about how we could have done it better, the state of Florida with better planning. Um, But I think, um, you know, the only thing we can do, we have a small office in Florida now and we're working on sea level rise issues and some, um, and housing issues and some other things. Um, So I love the state of Florida and I think it's just a unique, beautiful place, but we really need to, kind of look at it as this ecosystem and really protect it and um, try to repair it. That's awesome. Uh, That that makes me think. So, you know, I've talked a little bit on the podcast about biophilic design um, or biomimesis and 
biomimicry and the idea that you know buildings and design can actually reflect um, or connect to um, the environment that it's in. Sounds a little bit like regionalism. Um, what we were talking about before was more efficiency, but how how can that connection to the environment or how, how can a building actually support the environment um, through design? Yeah, I think sometimes it's really hard just because I think the building industry, when you do something the same way for so many years and it becomes so inexpensive, it's really hard to change it, you know? And I remember when we did do Colorado Court, which was kind of the first of its type, right? It was before LEED even certified buildings um, of that type. Mm -hmm. The What we were talking about with the contractor were things like two by six exterior walls instead of two by four, you know? And I mean, just really stuff that no one even talks about now. What I'm trying to say is the baseline for developers at the time was so low, it was creating climate change, right? Like you could kind of make that connection between, you know, our buildings are so terrible, they require so much energy to operate, but that was the threshold by which everybody kind of said, oh, well, your building's expensive, right? Meaning it's up here, well, the threshold was too low. So the threshold really needs to get higher, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think, and this brings me back to, I was quoted as saying the single family house is gonna be in the Smithsonian Institution one day, which is about <laughs> a decade ago, mm -hmm. um, because I think our, the planning of suburbs and the single family house has created so much destruction on so many levels for our country that we need to rethink the way we live and rethink what a house is. Um, and you can look to Europe again for many more examples of how people live mm -hmm. um, and how they share equity, you know, that I don't think we have here. But, um, you know, those are some of the things that I think are, are important. And do you think from just a purely aesthetic uh, perspective that, interacting with a building that has, you know, I don't know, maybe a green roof or something, you know, obviously green roofs have really beneficial things for the environment. Um, heat Island effect, you know, is lessened. You can actually grow maybe some fruit trees so people could eat. I mean, there, there's tons yeah. of benefits, but you think purely aesthetically, like walking uh, by a building that has, you know, trees on the roof and looking at it, like, does, does that do something for, for the, the psyche yeah. of those that are oh, interacting definitely. with the buildings? Yeah, definitely. And that's, um, I think, scientifically proven now that if you have a view to an open space or to a green space, that makes you feel better as opposed to not having a view. So that's not even being in the space. That's just actually looking into a space. Right. Um, so, you know, I think there, there's not a ton of data. And I know there are some architecture firms that are actually working on that so that they can, um, you know, present to clients the benefits of this kind of better way to design. But that's something that we've been, that we've known for a long time and we try to, you know, incorporate into our, our projects kind of what we believe as opposed to actually just looking at data and kind of presenting the scientific report because it's sort of intuitive to us, I think, at a, on a certain level. But I think it is helpful to get out of that intuitive space and have actual data where people can, can see. And I know there's a lot of data out there right now, for instance, um, students learn better when there's natural light mm -hmm. coming into the classroom, you know? So things that are really kind of simple that everybody intuitively knows, it's nice to have the data to back it up. Um, but that's yeah. something, those are things we've always believed in. What is the, the easiest, and I guess we should specify building type, but just overall, um, what is the easiest thing to get buy-in 
uh, for when it comes to you know environmental amenities um, in a building or or a, or a home, and what's the hardest thing to get buy-in? Um, so that's an interesting question because it always goes back to cost, right? So a lot of times when we actually, well, most of the time we don't even talk about it. We'll just design the building intuitively knowing that we have to do these certain things and they're not going to cost anything extra mm -hmm. when you start putting. And so that's kind of called passive design. When you design a building to um, work with the climate within which it exists, you know, you shade your uh, for California, you know, you don't want to have any glass West facing, for instance, um, you know, you want your solar panels in a certain position, you want airflow, cross ventilation, natural light. There are certain things that you do in California that you might do differently in another place, but it's called, it's a passive building. But once you put the active systems on that structure, so whether it's solar panels or um, a micro turbine or wind turbines or, or what have you, that's what increases the cost a little bit. So for me, the buy-in part of it is when you um, add those active systems, but with solar, solar, the cost of solar panels have gone down so much in the past, you know, couple of years that it's pretty easy to see the short payback time mm -hmm. on a piece of paper. And, you know, we just renovated our office here and we put a solar array on the roof and my payback I think is three or four years for the cost of the solar. And I don't really pay anything in energy. I pay a little bit um, just because I happen to have two meters. It was an existing building. We kept the existing meters, nice. um, but you know, it's almost a no brainer. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, Difficult thing is with developers who want to build something, sell it, and um, they don't have the long-term view. Um, that's a little bit more difficult. But I think people who buy into that, whether it's a condominium or even if you're a renter, if people want to live there, they want it to be energy efficient and they don't want to have huge utility bills. You know, so um, at the end of the day, I think it's it's worth it for everyone. But you know, that's kind of for me, it's a kind of a cost benefit analysis. And those are things that we've been doing for 20 years, cost benefit hmm. analysis. And at least they're changing now. Thank goodness. Right. The cost benefit analysis is a lot different because a lot of it you just do, right. It's in the code book now. Yeah. You just have to do it. So we don't have to talk about it. So that actually is a lot better. And there's, you know, talking about technology, um, sort of in-house technology, you know, some of the energy modeling tools and the computer systems that exist now um, right. that can, yeah you know, that can show you like minute by minute, uh, savings, shading. literally. Yeah. yeah exactly. shade, like, shade Oh, well, analysis. if you put the shading here, then right. you're not going to have to heat it nearly as much. And you can, you can show that cost benefit analysis in, in data mm -hmm. and numbers. Um, yeah, exactly. Has that been a big, a big help? I, I talked to one architect, um, who, you know, basically said, yeah, there's lots of pros to all the, all the new stuff, all the newfangled stuff, but it also sometimes speeds up a process, which as you've said, you've used the word intuitive a couple, a couple times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for, for folks that are really doing the work and, and know it well, like yourself, um, is it sort of, I don't know, annoying <laughs> to have these tools or is it just purely, Hey, I can do this quicker and now I can put my energy somewhere else. Yeah, I think it's great to have the tools. It's just that the tools have to work for you. So I know I've used some of the daylighting tools and um, they need to just, you know, they, they can't dictate your design. So sometimes the tools aren't, um, don't actually work with 
the other tools that we use in the office, you know, so they don't work for us, but the tools that do work, I think are really helpful. And I think one of the things about computer technology and sort of software programs that we've benefited from is this idea kind of on the material side that you can look at material and sort of look at your design and really pare down your design so that um, what something that looks maybe expensive or looks complicated at the end of the day really isn't, you know, because we can through a computer program tell the contractor, for instance, all of these uh, panels are the same size and only 20% of them are bent at this angle or only 20% of them are custom in this way or something like that. So, you know, I think using software and using these computer programs to help get your project built in the best, most efficient way is something that we use too as a tool. Great. Um, I'm curious, I know you, you worked with uh, Steve Glenn, who I interviewed uh, over at Plant Prefab, and you guys worked on a customizable prefab system called Nest. And I'd love to know a little bit more about that. Um, can you kind of just talk about the process and whether, you know, did you go into it with that goal? Did your goals sort of change along the way? Was it something that kind of came about organically through discussion or how did that come about? Yeah, well, uh, my partner, Larry Scarpa, ha had actually been talking to Steve Glenn um, for a while about doing something together mm -hmm. on, you know, we do a lot of housing and a lot of um, affordable housing and maybe something that is on that side. And so they'd been talking kind of casually. And then uh, last year, LA County came out with a, a challenge for architects and designers and it was called the housing innovation challenge where they asked for ideas of how to solve um, or how to be a part of the solution to solve the homelessness problem in LA County. And we answered that with a brief that was called the Nest Toolkit. And it was an idea. We were, Steve Glenn is our partner along with Community Corporation of Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea is that we take the prefab custom home building industry, which is Steve's plant prefab, and tailor it to permanent supportive housing. And how do we do that? You know, we came up with these three sort of types. We name them after the nesting habits of birds. And we've been doing affordable housing for a long time. So I know, we know that there are, there's temporary housing and there's permanent housing. And then there's also the shared housing model that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, so the three types are the blue jay, the dove, and the osprey. And the blue jay is really meant to be this temporary housing model where you would have modules that maybe are um, like large kitchens, sort of like the SRO, right? Where you have small units where people um, sleep, but then everybody eats in the same kitchen or shared bathrooms and showers. And then the Dove model would be more of this sharing of maybe um, two families sharing a kitchen, you know, more of a sort of shared living arrangement, which is more permanent. And then the Osprey, which is more kind of traditional units. And we looked at, um, because it was an LA County um, challenge, we know that most of LA County um, is sort of platted with this 50 by 150 suburban kind of lot parcel size. And so when we design projects, we, we, we know that we're either doing um, one, two, three, four, or five, a combination of these 50 by 150 foot lots. And so we took um, plant prefabs module size and truck size, and we know what that is, and we know kind of the parameters within which we could work. And we designed a module that is one size. So um, it's one size that fits within the truck, can be transported, but also works on the smallest lot size. So the 50 by 150 foot lot. So you could actually 
densify a typical suburban lot using this module with standard setbacks. We looked at, you know, they're all pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we do is really redundant, right? When we do studio apartments, they're pretty much all the same. When we do one bedrooms, there's not a lot of uniqueness about them. So um, the redundancy actually sort of helped where we could actually make one the best studio module, right? So the studio yeah. apartments, one module, and then when you connect modules together, you can get sort of larger um, units. And we basically won one of the grants. And so we won $1 million for, um, from LA County to do a demonstration project, which we're working on right now. So um, to me, it's one solution in kind of the broad world of solutions that we need to solve our, our homelessness problem. And it was meant to kind of fill that mid-range gap between, you know, really, really low density and then maybe mid-range density because the modules themselves, they stack, but they stack up to five stories. So, you know, if you get denser than that or taller than that, you have to go to some other kind of system. Mm -hmm. um, but it lends itself really well to being able to be used as a toolkit by other architects and developers. And something that we really wanted was that it's scalable so that anybody else can use it. So um, there'll be a website where somebody can go to the website and they'll be able to say, these are the modules that I want and they can be built in the factory, transported to the site, and then you can site build pieces of it. So you can either get the exterior from the factory so it comes out with an exterior finish or you can do the exterior finishes on the site and you can do the stairs on the site or you could do, we can have, you know, prefab stairs, you know, there are certain pieces that we're looking at to kind of prefab as well, but that allows different architects and different designers to actually tailor what the building is going to look like for the neighborhood within which it exists. So, um, so it's not just a really Sears important. Roebuck, you know, building. You right. Know, yeah. It can be tailored yeah. to, you know, whichever neighborhood you're in. Mm -hmm. One of the things we've discovered is that because they are all the same size and they're all, um, you know, these rectangle shapes, it lends itself to actually um, things like big parking lots. So like a church parking lot, which is kind of this big open area. Um, we did a little sketch for this, for one church in Santa Monica, where we actually put this on top of a parking lot. So you actually park under it. Um, and it turned into this sort of what I call a big house. So there were 16 modules, I think, that were sort of bedrooms and, and bathrooms and kind of study carols with two kitchens. And it was a big house in an R1 zone. We used the ADU um, um, code to allow us to have two kitchens. And it can house up to 16 people in a house that could be for permanent housing for college students who were previously homeless. You know, it's a solution that lends itself to kind of fitting into these underutilized kind of spaces. Um, it doesn't work as well, I think, on the 50 by 150 foot lot because that's such a small lot and it has, you know, um, I'd like to see it kind of be used in other ways and in more innovative ways and in sort of in denser, you know, sort of environments, but it would work at that scale too. It was really important to us that it work at the very smallest lot and then kind of at, at bigger scales. And were you guys talking about materiality during those discussions at all as far as like the end of the life cycle and being able to you know, use materials that could be, I mean, you know, let's say, let's say it's, it's on a particular lot and then that, that particular use is no longer useful. Can it be, I mean, is it almost like Legos where you could take it apart and put it back together in a different uh, formation or am I, am I a little too, too out there with that? 
Probably not just because <laughs> I think you're talking about sort of adaptive reuse, which is a whole nother conversation we can have about, um, you know, taking an existing building and then using it in a different way. Um, Wouldn't it be interesting with, to design something like with that in mind though, like, like yeah. similar to so, Nest, but like Nest 2.0, you know, where you actually well, were then able to, yeah. Is people are talking about um, rather than prefab modules, prefab panels. Hmm. And so the uh, panelizing things rather than having the modules would lend itself to what you're talking about, that it would be more flexible and more flexible kind of in the future. So I do think that people are talking about that now um, to kind of create something that looks like that. Um, but to me, I think we need everything. We need all the solutions, right? So I think right. we need, the thing with the prefab modules that is so great is that you can seriously decrease your construction time. So, and I've noticed over the years that construction time is kind of lengthening and lengthening. So a project that I used to build in 12 months now takes 18 months to build or two years. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure exactly why I have some idea, but um, it's taking longer and longer to build, which means it's going to cost more and more. And it's a longer time until people can actually live in whatever you're building. When you have the modules, uh, plant prefab, you know, it's a very, very short timeline to yeah. bring those modules out to a site. And so if you can save 12 months on a construction schedule, you know, people move in a lot quicker, you save a lot of money on that end of things. And so you know, that's one model that might, that works really well for certain, you know, solutions. And then I think um, other models work really well too, but I think we need to do everything. And I always get frustrated because I feel like things don't move quick enough, you know, with everything, right? With legislation, with um, politics, you know, I don't know. I feel like things should just happen quicker. And then I talked to a friend of mine last week and she said, oh no, Angie, I think you guys did a lot when you did this project that I was talking about, you know? And so I think when, I think it's helpful for me to step out of myself and kind of <laughs> take a broader view of what people can do and what people are doing. Um, because I do think there are these sort of paradigm shifts in that there's a tipping point and that when things do tip, it completely changes. And so I'm just going to keep pushing on the things that I know are important and, you know, one day they're going to tip and everything's going to, going to change. <laughs> um, outside of sort of the cost benefit analysis and, you know, proving to clients, hey, this is gonna cost you less, so here you go, um, here's this great idea. How, how does your method and your process at, at Brooks and Scarpa of involving the client um, in the process as, as much as possible, are you able to have those discussions where you get to actually push for something that's, that's meaningful, even if it does cost a little bit more? Um, does that open the door for that? Or do you find that because you're involving the client, you actually get more pushback on certain Yeah, things? no, I actually think um, it's interesting because I see it as a collaboration. You know, it's not, we don't really see ourselves as designers that design something in a studio and then give it to a client and say, here you go. Right. You know, so for us, whenever we work on something, the client is always like right there with us. And so it's a collaboration. Um, and so there are things that you, you know, talk about and then you discard and there are things that are important. And um, to us, it's the big, we always keep the big picture in mind, right? So if you're really concerned about a detail or um, some small piece of a project, you know, we always try to go back to the big thing, right? So 
courtyard buildings, for instance, right? That is a really, that's kind of a big deal. Buildings should be courtyard buildings up to four stories, just because that allows you to have cross ventilation in all the units, you know? So if someone comes to us and talks about double loaded corridors, you know, we have that first conversation right off the bat about the benefit of courtyard buildings and how, and generally it's about cost just because I think clients are concerned about cost. But for us, it's more about the beauty of the building too. And it's a part of the design of the building. So we don't talk about sustainability separate from design and, you know, design is the most important thing because you can have a building that's really, really sustainable, carbon neutral. And if it's a dog of a building and no one wants to live in it, right. Or work in it. Um, then people aren't going to love, people aren't going to love it. People have to love the spaces within which they kind of work and live. So for us, it's both. And, um, clients are always collaborating with us. And so it's really not that difficult for us. I think part of, part of kind of maybe the hard part of it is us just constantly staying up to speed with all the technology that's out there and, um, new products and carbon neutral products, you know, just a couple of years ago, people were talking about energy, right? So net zero buildings, and that's even in our code now. Well, what does net zero mean? Does that mean if it just means net zero energy? Well, what about water? Because we're in California and water is really important. And what about carbon neutrality? You know, so at the end of the day, carbon is really the thing that we need to be concentrating on and how to reduce carbon. But if we don't have carbon labels on things, right? Even going to the grocery store, you don't know what the carbon footprint is of what you're buying. If we don't know, there's no way for us to be better, right? Or to design a better future. So um, part of what I try to do too is to work to make that easier for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. If, if it's carbon, how do we get to this carbon neutral place? And if it's industry that has to change, how does legislation work to help industry change to start putting carbon labels on things, for instance, you know? So um, I think it's just explaining, you know, and I think when you present to a client something that is beautiful and you can say, um, you know, this meets your budget and, oh, by the way, it's um, really energy efficient too, right? (laughs) So you're not going to have a utility bill, for instance, or your, you know, your tenants aren't going to pay that much rent because, you know, we did this and that. You know, if you explain it to them, I think they, they get it, you know, so. You got to lead with cost and then be sneaky about the other stuff, it <laughs> seems like. Uh, you know, you've won a bunch of awards. I mentioned that at the top for you know, architecture and design work, um, but also, you know, citizen architect and some of the things related to community equity, housing accessibility. Um, I'm curious if there's one particular award uh, that you've won that that is your... Um, you know, your favorite one or uh, you feel most proud of? Yeah, I would say that um, the Smithsonian Cooper Hewitt National Design Award that we won in 2014 um, was probably, probably that one. And it's because that at the time, that's an award that is awarded by the First Lady. So it was Michelle Obama at the time. And, um, you know, one of the things, one of the comments that she said was that um, she really appreciated that we were bringing the value of design into communities that traditionally don't have it or don't have access to it. And so to me, that was 
what I've been trying to do, you know, my whole life. So I became an architect because I thought design, I thought that needed to be in communities. And I felt like the profession was very elitist and mm. it was disconnected from people who benefit from it the most. Right. So I think the design and we've actually, you know, we know that now because we've done a lot of affordable housing, beautiful design and passive design and, you know, what we do actually helps people heal. So, um, design is not just kind of the aesthetics, right? It's not just the paint on the building. It's actually how the spaces feel, right? How does, how does somebody enter their apartment, for instance? What's that circulation path? What does that look like? And so to me, that was a great example of having that pat on the back, you know, from somebody yeah. that I really admired who maybe doesn't follow architecture like everybody else, you know, but kind of sees that. And, you know, that's really the goal that I've been working on my whole life. So to me, that was really important. Uh, that's really cool. The, I mean, to get to meet her first of all, and then to have her say that on top of that is, is really, that's special. What do you think as um, a woman, you were part of the uh, Women in Green um, Voices in Sustainability back in 2007. And um, that was a, a man and a woman who wrote, who wrote the book together. Um, I thought that was interesting. And they wanted to do that so that nobody could really call mm -hmm. them out and say, you know, <laughs> well, you wrote it from a women's perspective. Yeah. Well, you wrote it from a women's Lance, perspective. Lance and Kira. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, <clears throat> what was that? Uh, what was that process like? And I guess, you know, in, in having been interviewed, I'm sure many times since then, you know, was that sort of the beginning of that conversation and how, you know, now that everybody's, talking about green sustainability all the terms we mentioned at the beginning um of the podcast how how has the woman's role in architecture and design and specifically in green design or, or environmental design um have you seen that change in the 13 years since then uh or do you think it's pretty much the same Mm, I think, um, well, I think, first of all, it's important to have really diverse teams on a project, first sure. of all. And I think in our industry, it has been, um, I was interviewed many, many years ago, and it was, my quote was on the internet saying that the AIA was the good old boys club, because hmm. that's sort of how, when I was in college, that's sort of how I saw it. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, you like to see yourself in kind of these future positions where you that you're aspiring to be in right and there were so few women um role models for me i guess yeah. um that i think this idea that the, that it's gender specific you know that women are the ones who are going to carry the green movement i don't really buy into that but i do think and i do believe that there are more women in that space now. And I was um, chair of the Committee on the Environment in 2018, and I was on the committee for three years. And um, there are a lot of women in that space. And, um, but I also know a lot of men who are in that space as well. And mm -hmm. I think on, when you talk about gender, I think it, it may be more that this was a new thing for the industry. And I think it was something that maybe uh, women who weren't so supported in the industry could take on, right, and run with. Mm -hmm. um, that maybe that's a big part of it. But I always try to 
not label things, right? Just to be completely kind of um, gender non-specific, right? I don't sure. think gender really has that much to do with it at the end of the day. I think it's more about the other factors that are around at the time. And I think kind of our profession needs to do a better job about supporting women. So I think one of the things that women need is sort of more flexibility just because of um, where our gender is at this time. You know, we still get paid um, cents on the dollar to what men make for the same, for the same job. You know, mm -hmm. there's childcare and there are all these other things. And um, the industry needs to change to support different people with that, whether it's a woman or a man, you know, um, we need to have flexibility, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we're all learning that a little bit right now. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know. I know even, you know, I know I'm a fellow of the AIA, but there are not a lot of women who are fellows. And um, yeah. even though we see more and more women going to architectural school, um, I think it might be 50-50 now, the men and women um, in colleges, it drops down severely when they get out into the workplace. So figuring out why that is, is something that we should be doing, right? Because we want to have, we need to have more diverse teams when we, you know, whether it's women or whether it's um, even homeless people, you know, um, sure. people of color, you know, yeah. the one of the projects we finished called the six for the Skid Row Housing Trust uh, was designed, you know, by us and the client, obviously. Um, then we met with the building committee that was made up of people who were previously homeless and they looked at it and we had this monumental stair coming down this courtyard, which was on the second floor to connect them to the sidewalk mm -hmm. because we assumed that that's what everybody would want. And the first thing they said was, oh my gosh, that's, we don't want to be that connected to the sidewalk. We used to live on the street and the street's a very dangerous place to be. And so what we want is a way to kind of get into our courtyard um, through some kind of secure measure, right? But, um, and not be so connected to the street, but we also wanted it to be a really open and kind of transparent building. So when you look at this building, it looks very open and transparent, but there is this pathway or threshold of space by which a person goes from the street or the sidewalk and into the project and kind of up into that second floor courtyard and then people have a visual connection to the street, but not a physical connection to the street. So that was a change that we made during design just because we talked to the people who are going to be living there. And sometimes it's really hard because you don't get presented with the people who are going to be living in your, in your you know, building or whether it's affordable housing or whatever it is, but it's something that you can talk to your client about. You, know, you can say, hey, can I um, speak to you know, whomever, the community, a community group or whoever it is, I just think it, at the end of the day, it makes the project better. Um, mm -hmm. and it, and it did so for us. So, um, that's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but, uh, I love asking folks, you know, what, what is a, a new innovation or a new technology, um, that we haven't spoken about yet that is really exciting for you that you could see as an, an application for, um, increased, you know, resiliency, durability, sustainability, whatever um, term you want to use. Uh, what's, what's a cool, exciting new innovation or technology in the space? Hmm, that is a question you didn't 
provide for me. Oh, I'm kidding. Um, I guess more so than a specific technology, I think it's really this idea about infrastructure. Hmm. So um, we obviously have infrastructure in our country right now, but it's not really working for us. And I think to think about policy, to think about the framework within which we build and sort of these systems on an infrastructure level, our existing buildings, for instance, are really infrastructure. We should be reusing them. We should be figuring out how to kind of use what we have and then how to adapt maybe places where uh, maybe they need to be greener, right? Or maybe we have sea level rise happening and no one can live there any longer. I think people are going to be retreating from certain areas mm. and then other areas are going to get denser. And then back to your um, comment about the smart grid or, you know, how we sort of connect the grid. Um, I think thinking about, I think these ideas about infrastructure. So I would just say that for me, it's these ideas about a smart grid, for instance, you know, I'm kind of shocked that we had a stupid grid right before. Why didn't we have, why didn't we build a smart grid, you know, before? Yeah. Oh, we didn't, you know, so, um, so ideas about how all of us in this country kind of live together and kind of share these systems. Um, you know, the highways, right. That we built in the fifties. I mean, some of them tore through neighborhoods and when people talk about social equity now, you know, we need to repair these neighborhoods. We, you know, how do we do that, right? Well, we're not driving around as much, right? People are working from home. I know at least here, I don't see traffic anymore because a lot of people are working from home and right. how much space, people are realizing how much space the, the, the car takes, right? People are taking over the street. They're, you know, restaurants are moving out into the street and people are realizing that makes them happier, you know, mm -hmm. to have more space, right? So all these ideas about infrastructure and how we can change infrastructure and make it work for us, those are the things that I see kind of as this technology, maybe that's going to change for the future. That's great. Cause it, cause it really speaks to not only the buildings themselves, but, but the people and the culture around buildings and around, you know, how they're sort of part of the fabric of our society um, and, and literally the infrastructure of, of where we live and how we move about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, our communities are living organisms, you know, so as an architect, you can't, I never thought I would just design a singular building on a singular plot of land and call it a day and go do something else. You know, it's every time we do something, we think about the neighborhood around it, what it is, where it is, you know, and um, architects generally don't have a seat at the table to talk about those bigger issues, but those are the things that we kind of work on. You know, how do we get designers in our profession to actually help um, maybe create some solutions for this broader community, you know, beyond the property line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it starts with really thinking about who, who the stakeholders are and, you know, going from the stakeholders being just the developer, yeah. <laughs> the the GC, the architect and the engineer to, you know, adding in the people that are going to be living, living in the building looking, to yeah. the people mm -hmm. that are going to be walking by the building to, you know, the, the um, kids that are going to be going to the local school, kids that are going to yeah. be going to schools to, to the, the folks that are at city hall who are very, um, you know, uh, 
very important when it comes to how to pave a path for mm-hmm. that, that better exactly. future because we can't do it without help mm-hmm. from everybody and yep. without input from everybody. So really uh, yeah, exactly. very much appreciate all the, all the work that you're doing and definitely appreciate the, the time that you spent with me today. Thank you, Angie. Yeah, you're welcome. Very nice meeting you. Yeah, nice to meet you as well. Um, are, did you want to throw out any like, you know, websites or resources or anything, you know, that, that people I'm actually going to double check or? that website that I told you the spelling of it. So I'll send you the link for that. <laughs> cool. D-S-I-R-E, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Or D-E-I-S. D-E-S-I-R. I think I, I was correct, but. <laughs> awesome. Well, I hope you have a great day and thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Ian. Talk to you later. Thanks a lot.